Good morning. All right, we are we're into it now with our uh, sermon series, uh, kicking it off for real this week. Steady on, finding strength in the book of Hebrews. Last week, we did uh, an intro sermon from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, kind of trying to capture the overall theme of the book. But now we begin uh, in earnest here in chapters 1. The focus of the book of Hebrews is perseverance. Perseverance uh, in the faith when things get difficult. Our text, which has just been read for us today, starts off uh, perhaps to uh, modern ears rather unexpectedly given the theme. Uh, The author of Hebrews begins rather uh, straight away with a lengthy exposition about how Jesus is superior to angels. It's all very interesting, depending on how interested you are in angels But it may not strike us as immediately obvious what it has to do with persevering in the faith. So if you were to come to me and you said, hey, I'm thinking about abandoning the faith, things are hard, and I were to say, don't give up, Jesus is better than angels, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in. I'm not leaving the faith now. But uh, this is where the author of Hebrews starts, and that raises a bit of a question for us. And a bit of a challenge for the preacher, to be quite honest with you, to figure out how to tie this all together uh, with our lives. I like to start my sermons generally by posing a topic and then posing a question that the bulk of the sermon or the text before us answers. And the question before us is, why does the author of Hebrews start by talking about angels? I'm not sure that's a very compelling question, but we're heading somewhere compelling. So here's what I want to do. Uh, with this sermon today. I'm going to do a bit more teaching on the front end than I normally do before we get to the application, but there's going to be two basic parts to our sermon. The first part is trying to figure out why it is that the author, who's concerned about perseverance and trying to inspire his, his readers to persevere in the faith, why he begins with angels, straight away talking about angels, And then the second part of the sermon, I'm going to suggest two ways that this passage can be applied to our lives. So the first part of the sermon is to try to figure out what's going on in the original context or the original audience. And then the second part is to figure out how how this has relevance or application to our lives. Okay, does it make sense? All right, here we go. All right, so as we get going, I want to just review uh, the context that I Uh, laid out for us last week. I'm not going to review the context every week, but the context uh, for Hebrews is particularly important. And so if you weren't here last week or you were here, but you were on your phone checking Facebook or whatever it was that I was doing the context, I just want to dial down on this one more time. After that, you're on your own for the remainder of the sermon series. But the context uh, is important for understanding the overall book of Hebrews, but particularly for understanding why the author is talking about angels here. So the audience, if you'll recall from last week, is a devout are devout Jews who have come to believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So they have embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but their newfound faith in Jesus has come with a cost. It's causing problems for them. When Christianity first came onto the scene, when uh, when Jesus first made his appearance and people began to believe in him, Initially, Christianity was just seen as a subsect of the larger Jewish tradition. So there were many sects within uh, the Jewish faith at the time, and the early Christians were just seen as 
another sect within traditional Judaism. But increasingly, this group of Jesus-following Jews came to be seen as a new thing. So by the time you get to the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, these, the, the Christian community is becoming distinct in its own right, and it's moving out from historic Judaism. And this has created a problem for those that are following Jesus, because under Judaism, under Judaism, the Roman Empire had given a, a, uh, an exemption, an allowance that exempted the Jews from having to pray to the Roman God. So that was not something that was available to all the peoples in the Roman Empire. But for the Jews, there was a special exemption that they didn't have to pray to the Roman gods. But now that these Jesus-following Jews are increasingly seen as something distinct from the traditional Jewish faith, they're no longer under this exemption anymore. And so they find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Their fellow Jews... The traditional Jews are viewing them as apostates who have left the faith, and the Roman authorities are beginning to view them as potential insurrectionists because they won't pay homage to the civic and the civil Roman gods, which you do as a sign of your loyalty to the empire. And so they're beginning to get persecution from both ends, from the Roman authorities, from the Jewish authorities, pressure and persecution. And they're thinking about retreating back into the safety of Judaism, which would alleviate pressure uh, from both fronts. And this is an important point, because they're not thinking about quitting the faith altogether. They're not going to apostatize into agnosticism or to atheism. They're thinking about retreating, retracing their steps back into Judaism. So the burden of the author and the focus of Hebrews is to show what these Jesus-believing Jews have gained in Jesus is better than anything that they've left behind. So if you're trying to make sense of the book of Hebrews, you're reading it, and you're trying to say, like, what is going on here? It's helpful to remember that the author is writing with the specific point of trying to help these Jesus-believing Jews maintain their faith in Christ and not retreat back into a form of Judaism that denies Jesus as Messiah. Okay, so with that context in mind, let's dig into chapter 1, try to figure out why it is that the author of Hebrews begins, given this concern with his conversation about angels. The entire first chapter is dedicated to showing that Jesus is superior to angels. That's the main point of the chapter. And the best way for the author to make his case that Jesus is superior to angels is to establish and assert the deity of the Son. Because obviously, if the Son is divine and equal to God, then he's better than the angels. So throughout the chapter, the author affirms in the strongest possible way the deity of Jesus. So incidentally, if you are ever dialoguing with someone and they want to know where in the Bible the Bible affirms or ascribes deity to Jesus as the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 1 would be a great place to go to. But the author isn't just giving a systematic treatment of the deity of Jesus. He has in mind to establish the deity of Jesus specifically to prove that Jesus is better than angels. He begins in verse 1 by noting that though God's revelation first came through the prophets, and here we'd reference the Jewish prophets, it has now come to us through his Son. The Son is the heir of all things, the one who inherits the kingdom. And he is the one, in fact, who has created the world. The Son, uh, uh, the son is the heir of all things, the creator of the world. And this act of creation 
that we see throughout Scripture is always ascribed to God. And so when the author of Hebrews, along with other New Testament authors, ascribes the creation of the world to the Son or to Jesus, this is a way of affirming the deity of the Son because it is God who is the one that creates. To drive home this point about the Son's divine identity, the author says in verse 3 that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of God's being. So this uh, idea of the Son being the representation or the mirror image is a way that that could be translated of God. So when you look in the mirror, you see what you are like. You get the exact picture of yourself. And in the same way, when we look at Jesus, we are, as it were, looking into the mirror that God himself is looking into. We are seeing the exact representation, the living image of God himself. Not only is the Son the one who created the world, but he is the one who still upholds it by his power and who is now seated at the right hand of God. So all this within the first three verses, and then we get to verse four and we're introduced to the angels. Jesus in his divine identity, the author tells us, is more excellent than the angels. A word here about the angels in the Jewish tradition will be helpful to help us understand why angels are being introduced. Angels functioned throughout Jewish history as powerful servants of God, expressions of God's mighty judgments in the world. And so if we go back and we read through the Old Testament, we're going to see pictures of angels showing up. They, we see, for instance, two angels who rescued Lot and his family from Sodom and then destroyed Sodom with hailfire. Or we're going to see an angel of judgment who killed thousands of Israelites as a result of King David's sin when he uh, took a census that he was not supposed to take. Or a destroying angel who was sent to break the siege of the Assyrians who had laid siege to Jerusalem and, and things were looking bad. And God sent an angel uh, in response to the prayers and humilities of King Hezekiah. And the angel came and destroyed nearly 180,000 Assyrian troops and broke the siege. So angels make regular, dramatic, and powerful, even if not frequent appearances in the Old Testament. But then, during the time of the span between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, it's covered about 400 years, so 400 BC to right around the turn of the millennia, you, you have this span of time in which interests in angels significantly increased in the Jewish tradition. Jewish writers began to develop intricate and involved angelologies. They would speculate on the names of angels the spheres of responsibility of angels, the, the, the various levels of powers of angels. They described in detail the deeds of the wicked angels as well as the righteous acts of deliverance of the good angels. So by the time we get to, the, to where the author of Hebrews is writing to these uh, Jewish believers, by the time we get there, angels have increasingly been fixated upon in the Jewish tradition as expressions of God's divine power, and his authority. God, of course, is the ultimate power and authority, but next in line are the angels. And so our author is at pains to insist that Jesus is greater than these great angels. So we read in verse 5 through 7 the, that Jesus is the Son 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be a father to him, he should be a son to me. Jesus is the son, in verse 6, who is worshipped by the angels. The angels are ministers of God, but Jesus is the son of God. The, minis- the, the ministers, the angels, ascribe worship. Jesus receives worship. Verses 8 through 9, Jesus sits on the throne and wields the divine scepter of authority over and above the angels. So verse 8, the the author ascribes a, a passage to Jesus from the Old Testament. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is the one who holds God's own scepter in the world. And then he says this, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And I think the companions that are in view here are the, the companions in the heavenlies, that the sun sits above and beyond the angelic hosts holding the divine scepter. And then in 10 through 13, this reaffirmation about Jesus as the creator. You, Lord, speaking of the sun, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And then he says this as well. The heavens are the work of your hands, that the Son is the one who has created the heavens, which is seen as the abode of the angels. And so Jesus, as the creator, has created the the habitation of the angels. This this heavens, they will perish, but the sun will remain. The, The heavens will wear out like a garment, like a robe. The sun will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but the sun is the same, and his years will have no end. So the sun's greater power and authority over the angels is not greater in the same way that an archangel's power is greater than that of a regular rank-and-file angel, as though Jesus were just a really great angel. That's one of the uh, errors or the heresies of the early uh, church, the belief that Jesus was a creature just like the other angels. But he was the greatest of all the creatures, to be sure, but he was just another creature. And the church said, no, that's, that's not accurate to the teaching of the apostles and to the scriptures. And we go into a place like here in Hebrews chapter 1, and it's very clear that Jesus is not just the greatest of the created beings. He himself is the creator that sits with the scepter of God's power and God's glory. He is the representation of God himself. Jesus' power and authority eclipses the power and authority of the highest angel in the same way and to the same degree that God's power and authority eclipses the power and authority of an angel. In other words, the power and authority of the Son over the angels is the power of the creator over the creature. Now, this doesn't discount the greatness of the angels. In fact, the author is not in any way trying to discount the greatness of the angels because that would work against the point that he's trying to make in saying that the sun is greater than even the greatest angels. The angels have great power. That's not in question. But the power of the sun is greater. Indeed, the power of the sun is the power of God himself. All right, so the punchline then for these Jesus-believing Jews was don't go back to relying on the power of angels to deliver you when you have access to the power of the Son. The reason the author begins his appeal by focusing on angels is because under the old covenant, the angels were the highest expression of God's authority and power in the world. In one sense, they were next to God himself, the best that the old covenant had to offer. But now, under the provision of the new covenant, they had the Son of God himself. 
So to abandon their faith in Christ and return to their old way of life was to trade out the divine power and authority of the eternal Son and the protection that came with it for the lesser power of heavenly creatures. Don't give up on the Son of God for the, for the mere servants of God. That's the point of chapter 1. And it had punch and power and direct application to these Jewish believers as they contemplated going back into the Old Covenant to leave behind the Son of God himself to, to settle for the lesser power of angels. And this is why the author starts here. He picks the, what is the high, the high point, as it were, of the Jewish faith as it was understood at that time. And he says, what you have in Jesus is better than the best of what you've left behind. All right. So hopefully that helps us understand chapter one and how that fits into this point about persevering in the faith for this particular audience. But what do we do with this with this text? How do we apply it? I think there's two applications. So first, first thing, hold fast to Jesus. He offers us more than we've left behind. Hold fast to Jesus. He offers us more than we've left behind. Not many of us, I suspect, if or when we are tempted to abandon the faith, are tempted to, to embrace traditional Judaism. Most of us who are here this morning, came to embrace faith in Christ from a different starting place, right? And so when we are tempted to abandon the faith, I think it's most typical that when we abandon the faith, we abandon it back to where we were before we came to faith. That was certainly the case for these Jesus-believing Jews, right? When they were thinking about abandoning the faith in Jesus, they were thinking about going back to where they were when they started. I think this is true for us as well. And so most of us here didn't come to faith in Christ from Judaism. We came to faith in Christ from a, from a secular agnosticism or a, or a kind of a benign religi religiosity, which means that going back for us will most likely involve either going back to the kind of godless secular life that marked our pre-Christian past, or it means falling away to a benign and marginal religiosity that doesn't make any real difference or impact in our lives which is pretty much the same thing as the first thing. Wherever you came from, wherever we came from, to our place of faith in Christ, the point of Hebrews 1 still stands. What we possess through faith in Jesus is better than anything that could possibly be offered to us by our old way of life. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that is in our rearview mirror is completely without merit or goodness. The author of Hebrews wasn't saying, don't go back to angels because angels are bad or angels are worthless. He was saying, don't go back to angels because angels aren't the best. The very best of what you had in your old way of life cannot compare with the blessings that have come to you through Jesus. I think that's the point for us here with Hebrews 1. This, of course, doesn't mean that the path of faith is easy that every blessing that Christ promises to us is, is, comes to us immediately in the here and the now without pain or cost. In fact, as we looked at last week, so much of what Jesus promises us, the joy that he gives us is set out in front of us. It's before us. We're pressing on to lay hold of it. It's waiting for us in the future. And that's why perseverance and faith are necessary. But if you're thinking about jumping ship or if you've 
tempted to put your toes in the water of apostasy and turning away from God, or maybe perhaps not in a grand scale apostasy, but in kind of these little pockets of apostasy in our lives that all of us at times can be tempted towards. Let me ask you this. What does your old way of life offer you with respect to the things that matter most to human beings? Things like hope, Love, joy, purpose, life, dignity, meaning, the things that really matter for the human being. Does your former way of life offer you these things? Jesus offers us lasting hope, unmerited love, endless joy, clear purpose, eternal life, true dignity, and real meaning. The faithless life, especially the secular versions of the faithless life that so mark our society, offer us pleasure instead of purpose, distraction instead of hope, entertainment instead of joy. And ultimately, no matter what else it offers us, it offers us death instead of life. The secular versions of happiness that mark our society don't even pretend to address the question and problem of death. Whatever you fall back to is going to be lesser than the eternal life offered to you in Christ. So I don't know what the angels are in your life, the things that you are tempted to return to. But whatever they are, they cannot hold a candle to what God has promised you in Jesus. Faith is choosing to believe that what you have in Jesus is better than anything that you left behind. Doesn't mean that we're not, doesn't mean that we're going to be without doubts. We're going to have doubts at times. We're going to have our faith pressed and we're going to wonder, is it really worth it? Is what God has promised to me out in the future, is it is it true? Is it really there? And are there other things that I could pursue that, that could, could give me satisfaction? But I think if we're honest and we look closely at these alternatives, we're going to see that they come up bankrupt. I'm thinking of the disciples in John chapter 6. Jesus is getting to the end of his ministry and his, his teaching is becoming increasingly more and more polarizing. And he's just given the bread of life discourse in which he says that, that true life is found in eating his flesh and in drinking his blood. And he scandalizes so many that are following him and many of his followers leave him at that time. And Jesus looks to the 12 and he says, do you want to leave me too? I don't know what the 12 were thinking. They, maybe they too were scandalized somewhat by what Jesus was saying. I had no reason to believe that they understood it any better than the rest of the disciples. But here's what they said. They said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That when we look at like what the rest of the world around us offers, we can't see any hope. You at least are offering us the words of eternal life and we will stick it out with you. So as you consider in, in this path of faith what it costs to persevere, think about what's being offered to you at the end. Go ahead and compare it to what is being offered to you outside of the faith. And I can say to you that if you understand rightly what is being offered to you in Jesus, you will see that the best that the world offers and any other uh, 
option offers us pales in comparison to what Jesus offers us. So the first application, hold fast to Jesus. He offers us more than what we've left behind. Here's the second application. Trust in the power of Jesus. It's greater than any other power. The author of Hebrews was concerned to make the point that the power of God through the Son was greater than the greatest conceivable power under the Old Covenant, which was the purview of the initial readers of Hebrews. In that case, it was the power of angels. But when we moderns think about power, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are not inclined to think about angels as the quintessential expression of power in the world. So if I say to you, like word association, and I say power, probably not very many of you are going to angels. We have in mind different sorts of power, more kind of earthy types of power, things like political power, or the public power that comes through fame, or perhaps the physical power and prowess of an athlete, or financial power of the wealthy, or the lethal power of weapons of war, kind of more immediate, tangible expressions of power. These tend to be the powers that we reckon with in the modern world. So even though we have different visions of power and are not as preoccupied with angelic power as were the first readers of Hebrews, we just as much as they are nonetheless concerned with power. And we just as much as the first readers of Hebrews need to be reminded that the truest and greatest power, the power of God himself, is found in the Son. Just as there is no angelic power that can compare to Jesus, so too there is no earthly power that can compare to Jesus. Some of us crave power for ourselves. That's, I think, a smaller subset of the population. Most of us, I think, simply want to rest in the protective power of another. We don't want the responsibility that comes with power. We want to find power, and then we want to cozy up underneath it. The power of a parent, a boss, a husband, a pastor, a government, a coach, perhaps a dominant member of our peer group. And in a sense, this makes perfect sense, and there's nothing uh, wrong with it. God, in many, many, many ways, has designed the world to function in this way. We all intuitively sense our own vulnerability, and it's innate to the human condition to gravitate towards institutions or people of greater power than ourselves as a means of self-preservation. This is how the world works. There are, in fact, whole movements of psychology that are built on this fundamental idea, and I think that there's a lot of uh, merit to this. There's nothing wrong or inherently wrong with this. But it becomes a problem when we place the full weight of our trust in lesser and finite powers, and we forget, maybe in subtle ways, we forget that the fount of all power is found in the sun. It becomes a problem when we venerate and hold aloft and sign allegiance to lesser powers over and against the true power of God. We're called throughout Scripture to give allegiance to proper earthly powers, whether it's to government or to employers or to, to our spouses or to uh, our parents. These are, these are things that we are called to, powers that we, and authorities we are called to recognize. So there's nothing wrong with recognizing earthly powers, but there is a problem when we recognize or give allegiance to earthly powers over and against the powers of God. We can know that we've gotten our dependencies mixed up when we find ourselves tempted to follow or appease earthly powers 
even when it means compromising our faith. Take a moment this morning and think for a moment about the powers around you in your life that you venerate, that you acknowledge, that you cozy up to, that you do not like to upset. These powers in your life that you don't want to get on the wrong side of. These powers in your life that you cozy up to. How tempted are you with those powers, legitimate or illegitimate powers, how tempted are you to compromise the integrity of your faith in order to appease those powers? What lengths are you willing to go in order to secure the favor of a parent, a boss, a teacher, or even in an inverted way the, to appease the power of a child, the power of the dominant person in your social circle? Allegiance to earthly powers is not bad. In fact, it's very often right, but it becomes bad when it trumps allegiance to the power of the sun. There is no president, no athlete, no entertainer, no wealthy person, no parent, no employer, no pastor, no, not even a pastor, no, no one who has the power that is even in the same class as Jesus. And if we are if we understand properly Jesus' sovereignty and his rule over this world, and we recognize that all earthly powers that we are called to give allegiance to are just expressions and shadows of Christ's greater power that upholds the universe through the word of his might, then we understand that the real power that we must give allegiance to, the one that we must really bow down before, is the power of the Son. And that will mean at times in our life that we have to resist the powers on earth. And there will be costs and consequences with opposing earthly powers in order to give allegiance to the heavenly power of the Son. He is the one who holds the entire world, and not just the world, but our personal worlds, together by the word of, the, of his power. He is the one in whose power he is the one whose power is most worthy of appeasement and honor and veneration. So, from Hebrews chapter 1, hold fast to Jesus. He offers us more than we've left behind. And trust in the power of Jesus. It is the greatest power in the universe and the one that we should appease. God has given us so much good in Jesus. So this is, I think, the, not only the message of Hebrews 1, but it's the message of the entire book of Hebrews. But God has given us so much good in Jesus. And we're tempted to, to sin, whether it's the grand sin of apostasy or whether it's the smaller little apostasies that all of us are tempted to in our everyday life. We need to remember that what is being offered to us in Jesus is so much better and so much greater and so much more valuable than anything that's being offered to or given to us by our old way of life apart from Jesus. Amen? God, thank you that you gave us Jesus. He is uh, so much better than the angels. We thank you that you've sent angels to minister uh, on our behalf. But God, we thank you that you have given us the Lord and the creator of angels through your son. And so we worship him today. We acknowledge uh, his power in our lives. We swear allegiance to him 
and to him alone. God, help us to, uh, in deference to his powers, show respect where it is proper to the earthly powers, but help us, Lord, never to honor those earthly powers in ways that compromise our integrity and our allegiance to you and your son. God, uh, give us faith to believe that all that we have in Christ is better uh, than anything that we could have apart from him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.